All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and get started. We'll turn the fire hose on, and uh, there's a lot of material to cover today, so we just have to jump in and get started. Let me pray for our time together. Jesus, thank you for creating us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that as a community, all of us together uh, can learn from you. And we pray that we would uh, glorify you in our lives through uh, what we learn together. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So as I said, last week we covered the doctrine of God, and we're going to finish that up with a discussion on the Trinity before we jump into the bulk of today, which will be the doctrine of humanity. Um, Sometimes this is called theological anthropology, uh, but it's just what does the Bible say about human beings? And so when we get into the doctrine of humanity, the big idea is the crowning achievement of God's creation is the creation of embodied, gendered image bearers. So that's you and me. The crowning achievement of God's creation is the creation of embodied, gendered image bearers. And the application is simple. Are you thankful for God's creation of you as an embodied, gendered human being? So that's where we'll go when we get to the doctrine of humanity. But um, here's an outline for you of what we'll cover. So we'll start with the Trinity, and then we'll spend a bulk of our time on the Imago Dei, which is the image of God. And then we'll discuss human nature, and then we'll finish with a very brief introduction to sin. So, let's dive in. So we'll begin with the doctrine of the Trinity. So this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. And the church has historically affirmed that God eternally exists as three persons. And so the formula to describe this, God is one in essence, three in persons. So each member of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity are fully God. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so all of the attributes of God that we discussed last week can be ascribed to each person of the Godhead. So God's immutability, God's unchangeableness, God's simplicity, God's goodness, truthfulness, all of those attributes can be ascribed to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. So Christians are rightly called monotheists, the view that there is only one true God, and that's over against polytheism, think of Greek and Roman gods. All the other gods are not really gods. They're false gods. God is the one true God. 
And the passage in the Old Testament that affirms this most clearly is Deuteronomy 6.4. It's a prayer known as the Shema, which means hear or listen. And Moses writes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's the foundation of monotheism in the Old Testament. Monotheism differs from Unitarianism. So Unitarians believe that there is only one person in God. So they would, they would reject three persons in God. There is only one person in God. And Unitarians typically deny the divinity of Jesus. So they will say Jesus is a great moral teacher who led by example and we should imitate him. Unitarians typically follow basically moral exemplarism. We should imitate Jesus in his good works and good teaching, but he was not divine. Um, Nor are Christians tritheists, the belief in three gods, three separate gods. Trinitarianism affirms that there are three persons in one Godhead. And so when we get to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul, I think, provides a Trinitarian interpretation of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. So that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So what Paul is doing there is he's affirming the oneness of God. For us, there is uh, one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. He's affirming the oneness of God, but he's recognizing a distinction in persons. So Paul is suggesting that the Father, God, created the world, and he spoke the world into existence through his son or through the word, the agent of creation. And then as we look at the biblical story, we see that the spirit was also present at creation, hovering over the waters, Genesis chapter one. So in in the Bible, we don't explicitly have the word trinity. Uh, it, it would be considered what's extra-biblical. So that means the word is not in the Bible itself. Uh, it's first used in the third century by a man named Tertullian. Uh, but the word itself is not found in the Bible. But this is not a problem uh, because we believe Scripture reveals the triune God. And the church councils that gathered together to formulate Uh, the creeds that uh, outline what we believe about the Trinity reason from the Bible 
that God is one in essence, three in persons. So let's go to some biblical affirmations of the Trinity. Um, The classic text people generally go to is found in Genesis 1. Um, And I don't necessarily read this as a direct reference of the Trinity, but people appeal often to the let us make mankind in our image. Um, As I said, I don't think that's directly... um, referencing the Trinity, but I do believe that it's pointing to a fullness of life that exists in God. And then I believe in what's called progressive revelation. So over time, as time progresses, God reveals himself through scripture. And so we see the Trinity as something that's progressively revealed across scripture. And the whole of scripture reveals God as triune. Another text people appeal to, Jesus' great commission, Matthew 28, 19, where he instructs his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's one of the first places where we get all three names explicitly mentioned in the same place. I think one of the clearest biblical passages that reveals the Trinity is at the end of 2 Corinthians. And Paul closes his letter, and it's his benediction, and he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, I mean, there are numerous other passages um, we'll spend a lot of time next week when we talk about the, the divinity of Jesus. Um, we'll look at those passages. But those are just a few that mention um, each person of the Trinity together. So the historical development of the Trinity uh, is first outlined in the Nicene Creed, And that takes place in 381 at the Council of Nicaea. And um, in 325, they first outlined what they believed about the Father and the Son. And then 381, they added a section on the Spirit to also affirm that they believed the Spirit was also God. So in your notes, I gave you the text of the Nicene Creed, that you can read that on your own. But what that doesn't mean is that in 325 or 381, the church invented the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, But what becomes known as orthodoxy is articulated in response to certain controversies. So uh, what was the church responding to? So major errors that they were responding to, um, now we call them early Trinitarian heresies. So we'll just look at a couple of them. 
So the first view, think of monarch or a ruler, is monarchianism. It comes from a word that means ruler. And these views emphasized the unity of God. And there are two major forms of monarchianism, dynamic and modalistic monarchianism. So dynamic monarchianism says that Jesus was just an ordinary man, but he was particularly holy, and the Holy Spirit descended on him at his baptism. And so they would say at that particular moment, at Jesus' baptism, he then became empowered to perform miracles, but he himself was not eternally divine. So when we think about Jesus' um, life and his person, this view sometimes is also associated with what's called adoptionism. Think of at that moment, God adopts Jesus as specially um, empowered to perform miracles. So at a certain point in time, God adopts Jesus as his son, giving him supernatural power. But Jesus was not eternally divine. So the Nicene Creed wants to reject that. Um, in the section on the Son, they say, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the ages, or begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So it's affirming Jesus' divinity from eternity. There was not a point in time when Jesus became divine. So another way to think about dynamic monarchianism is that God works in and through Jesus, but no real essence of God is in Jesus. So the Nicene Creed rejects that. The other form of monarchianism is modalism, God working in different modes. So this view maintains that the, the members of the Trinity are not, or rather are one person, not three persons. So it is one person existing in different modes rather than three persons. So um, God designated at different times and he existed in different modes. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit would be identical. There would be no distinction of persons on this view. And then the other major person they were responding to was a bishop by the name of Arius, and this became known as Arianism. And Arius denied the divinity of Jesus. Arius taught that Jesus was a created being. God created the Son. Now, he said the Son is the first and the highest of all God's created beings, but the Son was nevertheless a created being. So Arianism denies the eternal nature of the Son. 
but as the, the creed affirms, he was eternally begotten of the Father. So that affirms Jesus' eternal nature as the Son. So the council at Nicaea condemns Arius in 325 and then in 381. So contemporary forms of Arianism today uh, would be Unitarians, Unitarian Universalist churches, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All of those would be a contemporary form of Arianism that denies the divinity and eternality of Jesus. And so the point is, these ancient heresies are not just outdated debates that are done and settled, but as we've discussed, history rhymes, and the church has to faithfully contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We can also speak of what's called the economic and the ontological trinity. The economic trinity refers to the distinctions of the three persons in terms of their roles in God's works in relation to creation. The ontological trinity is who God is in himself, so his eternal relations. So the economic trinity is who God is ad extra, which means um, apart from himself in his relation to creation. So the three persons would have three distinct roles in creation, salvation, and sanctification. So the Father would exercise the primary role in creation. The son would exercise the primary role in salvation. And then the spirit exercises the primary role in sanctification, making us holy. So they have different roles in creation. At the same time, the church affirms the inseparable operations of the Trinity. And inseparable does not mean indistinguishable. So the inseparable operations of the Trinity means that when one person of the Trinity acts, all three are acting. They do not act independently of each other, though we can make distinctions in how they operate. So the Father speaks creation into existence 
through the word, through the son, who is the agent of creation, who was with the father at the time of creation. And then as I said, we also know the spirit was present at creation, hovering over the waters, preparing the earth for creation or preparing to um, create the world. And so that's an inseparable operations. All three are acting, though we make distinctions. Uh, Or you can think of the father designs his plan of salvation. He plans to send the son to carry out salvation. And then the spirit applies salvation to us. The spirit plays a primary role in our sanctification. The Spirit plays a primary role in conforming us to the image of the Son. And Jesus himself is the image of the invisible God. So they're all three at work. The ontological trinity is who God is in himself. So this is what's known as the eternal relations of origin. So what this means is the father is eternally characterized by paternity or by his fatherliness. He has always been the father of the son. He did not become the father when the son became incarnate. He has eternally been the father of the son. The son is eternally characterized by his generation. So the father, paternity, the son, he is eternally characterized by his generation or his sonship. So we, we can speak of what's called the eternal generation of the son. And this sounds super strange. How could he be eternally born from the father? But that's what we're saying. Uh, he, is etern- he eternally generates from the father. There was never a time when the son was not, when the son did not exist. That's what Arianism said. Uh, we would say he eternally exists as the son. And this means the son is not inferior to the father. He's not subordinate to the father. But there is an equality of persons in the Trinity. No one member of the Trinity is inferior to the other. And then the Holy Spirit is eternally characterized by his procession from the Father and the Son. So the creed says that uh, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
The spirit was not created at a point in time. And the spirit is not inferior, but he proceeds from the father and the son. So if you draw a diagram, I've been drawing this triangle. (laughs) Uh, So we have the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you think of just an equilateral triangle, this affirms that all three members of the Trinity are one in essence, three in persons, and it affirms the equality of each person of the Trinity. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. So there is distinction, but they are all equal in essence. You can also think of it this way. Getting some feedback. Do you all hear that? So the father and the son, this dark line, would represent the eternal generation. The son eternally is generated from the father. And then this dotted line is the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So if you want to brain dump all of that, I wrote that too fast. Three in one, not one in three. Three in one. God is three in one. So that's a little intro to uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. And we don't pretend to understand it. Uh, It's it's a great mystery. Um, But it's, it's meant to draw us to worship the God who is three in one. So let's move on to our doctrine of humanity. And we're going to spend a lot of time on the image of God, or the imago dei. And again, as I said, the the big idea is that the creation, or the crowning achievement of God's creation, is his creation of embodied image bearers, We are embodied and gendered image bearers. And we'll discuss why I'm emphasizing our bodies and our gender. (laughs) Because this is fundamental to who we are as an image bearer of God. And the application is, are you thankful for God's creation of you as an embodied, gendered image bearer? Psalm 139, 14 
says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So the doctrine of the imago dei asserts that God created human beings in his image, distinct from the rest of creation, and he endows us with dignity and significance. The image of God is both a straightforward concept and a very elusive concept. Uh, Historically, there are various positions as to what the image actually is. What do we mean when we say humans are in the image? So there was no church council, there was no statement that said this is what it means to be in the image. Now the straightforward part of it is that all Christians agree that human beings are in the image. But as I said, it's elusive in the fact that, what does that mean? So what? So at its most basic, here's what I take the image of God to mean. The image of God is essential to human nature. So the image is the essence of human nature. So to be human is to be in the image. So Greg Allison will say, you know, if Martians came to earth and they said, take me to your leader, where is the image? You would say, here's the image right here. This is the image of God. Now, of course, we make distinctions of Jesus as the image of the invisible God, but human beings are the image of God. So insofar as you're a human, you exist as an embodied, gendered image bearer. And there are two types of human beings. You either exist as a male embodied image bearer or a female embodied image bearer. So to use a philosophical word, uh, this is an ontological concept. So ontology has to do with being itself, the nature of existence. So being in the image is what makes you human. So the foundational text is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in this context, it's clear that God intends to create human beings 
who would be his image bearers on the earth, who would be his representatives, and who would exercise rule and dominion over the earth. We are designed to be his representatives who fill the earth with other image bearers who also exercise dominion over the earth. So you can think of us as God's vice regents or co-rulers. We are, we are to be his co-rulers, his vice regents who steward the creation. And as an image bearer, there are two aspects We are designed to reflect and represent the God in whose image we are made. So the nature of our existence as human beings made in God's image is to represent and reflect God's rule over creation. And so resulting from the status of bearing God's image, then we are tasked with the creation mandate of Genesis 1.28, which is the be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion. That's the creation mandate. So the creation or the image is expressed in the creation mandate. The creation mandate in itself is not the image. Humans are in the image and then they express what it means to be in the image through the cultural mandate. And the, the creation mandate is to build society for human flourishing. And there are two primary aspects to the creation mandate. And that's procreation, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with more image bearers. And then vocation, Subdue it, have dominion, work the earth, Edenize the world. And so both aspects of the creation mandate are designed to lead to human flourishing. And so today we continue to fulfill the creation mandate. We build civilization through, uh, first and foremost, having babies, we live in a culture that says uh, it's immoral to have children uh, because of the climate crisis. Uh, but this worldview that sees human beings as a plague or as part of the problem is completely contrary to the worldview of the Bible. That's fundamental to the creation mandate is the multiplying and filling of the earth with other image bearers of God. We also continue this creation mandate through work in politics, education, business, art, science, technology, agriculture, economics. We are designed to steward the earth for human flourishing. The other aspect of bearing God's image some implications of this 
as God's representatives, human beings are of immeasurable dignity and value at every stage of development, from conception to natural death. So a little tiny embryo in utero is in the image of God. A person with severe developmental disabilities, somebody with Alzheimer's disease, is equally and fully made in the image of God. And on this basis, the dignity of being an image bearer, murder is prohibited in Genesis 9.6. Murder is a grievous sin because it's an affront to the image of God. And capital punishment, uh, when justly administered, acknowledges the dignity of the victim as being an image bearer. That's the basis of Genesis 9.6. James 3.9 says, Cursing others is prohibited since all people are made in the likeness of God. That's an allusion to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So you can't worship God and curse others in whose image they are made. Humanity's status in the image of God is foundational to the unity of the human race. So in other words, all people in equal measure are in God's image. All people in equal measure are in God's image. And so as such, this doctrine has been the basis for rejecting heinous sins such as racism, sexism, and any other sin which degrades, defames, or devalues human beings. Sex trafficking, pornography, all of these heinous sins degrade, defame, and devalue God's image bearers. Let's look at some historic views about the image. So throughout church history, there have been various models of what the image entails. And we think, okay, why are models necessary? Well, it's natural for us to want to arrange all the biblical material in a particular way. We have to make sense of the various biblical passages And so we put these various verses together um, to come come together with an understanding of what the image entails. So the first is what's known as a substantive view. Sometimes it's also called a structural. So the substantive view 
considers the image to basically be some sort of human attribute or characteristic. Usually it's human rationality, um, our intellect, our will, our, our free will, moral conscience, those things that distinguish us from other animals. So basically the substantive view looks at the other creatures and then builds its case for the image based on the things that distinguish human beings from the rest of creation. This is, generally this has been the dominant view, though it has its problems. Uh, Mainly, there's been no consensus as to what attribute is actually identified with image bearing. Is it consciousness? Is it rationality? Is it free will? There's no consensus as to what attribute it is that is the image. Now, the dominant view is that it's human rationality. But if that's the case, then it raises all sorts of questions about people with severe intellectual disabilities, people who have suffered traumatic brain injuries, other medical conditions that negatively impact somebody's cognitive capacities, or think of how Americans viewed blacks in the 1800s in the southern slave states. Are these people considered less in the image of God? So other criticisms of this is that it's too abstract or that it's reductionistic. It's reducing the image to one particular human capacity. Now, in response to that criticism, somebody could say, well, there's nothing intrinsic to that model that entails denigrating people into different classes or categories. But um, though this has been the dominant view throughout history, recently this view um, is not very popular (laughs) Uh, because of those problems I, I mentioned, all the exceptions, all the questions to think about. Another model would be the relational view. So the relational view would consider the image to be essentially relationality. So they would say um, the community that men and women enjoy reflects the relationship that human beings enjoy with God. So some modern theologians that held to this view Robert Jensen, um, Karl Barth, Jensen says that the image is human capacity to relate to God through prayer. Uh, Karl Barth says that he believes the male-female relationship uniquely images God's Trinitarian life. 
So God experiences himself as a community of persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, human beings in this male-female relationship in some way mirror the fullness of life that exists in God's triune relationship. I don't hold to this view. Um, Problems with the relational view, I think, are um, similar to the substantive view. How do we think about people with severe intellectual disabilities or the baby in the womb? What does their relationality look like? It certainly exists, uh, but does that mean that their image-bearing capacity is diminished in some way? Other problems with that view, uh, I think, are relationship grounded on what? So if they say, well, it's our ability to relate to God. Grounded in what? (laughs) That's not a capacity that hangs in midair. It has to be rooted in some human faculty. So I'm suggesting that if you take the relational view, you have to ground it in the, the substantive or the structural view. Because I relate to Garrett as an embodied person. So my body would be the structural or the substantive view. So relationship doesn't just exist out here in the air. It has to be grounded in something. So I, I think it has its problems. Um, also, this relational view would emphasize community, which is fine. Uh, but what about the individual? The individual as an image bearer, not just the community. Another popular view is called the functional view. So that this view would say the image is some sort of human activity or function i.e. Genesis 1.28, the creation mandate. God created his image bearers to exercise dominion, to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. So they would say the exercise of dominion is what it means to be in the image. The problem, I think, with the functional view is that as I see it, the creation mandate of Genesis 1.28 results from being in the image, but the creation mandate itself is not the image. So again, you express, the creation mandate expresses the image, but it is not the image itself. The view that I hold to is a holistic view 
And I refer to it as an organic view. And that comes from Herman Bavink. But the holistic view basically considers all these others, the substantive, relational, and functional, to be reductionistic in some way. The holistic view sees the whole person as the image of God. Human beings in their totality as individuals, in human relationships, and human activity are in the image of God. So in a way, this view is combining the positive aspects of these models. Bavink says the whole person is the image of God. And Bavink also says a human being does not bear or have the image of God, but that he or she is the image of God. And so he would also say nothing in a human being is excluded from the image of God. So this would mean that uh, our bodies are a part of what it means to be in the image. So what is the image? You're looking at it. Uh, This is something, our bodies are something that distinguish us from the angels. Angels don't have a body, a physical body, and angels are not made in the image of God. Human beings have bodies and we are made in God's image. And I think the significance of this is that it has something to do with Jesus taking on human flesh. So the image is connected to the incarnation. Our bodies are designed to reflect God And when Christ took on a body, he revealed to us the image of the invisible God. Four aspects of the holistic view are the following. The first is that it's essential to human nature. So Roman Catholics would associate the image with what they call a super-added gift. So here's what they mean. They make a distinction between the image and likeness. So I think there's good evidence to suggest that those words are synonymous and used interchangeably but they take the image and likeness to refer to different things. And so Catholics would understand the image to be natural human gifts, rationality, free will, and then the likeness of God would be original righteousness. It's a super added gift, um, original holiness, immortality, and It's given so that we can rule over our passions. 
and Adam loses the likeness, he loses the superadded gift. Um, but in other words, it's saying the likeness is not essential to human nature. But I believe that the image is essential to human nature. It's never lost. Somebody never loses the image of God. <clears throat> now, as we'll discuss, it can be damaged, and it is after the fall, but it is never lost or totally destroyed. So the image is essential to human nature. It's a part of the whole person. The second aspect is that the image is multifaceted. So the image includes every aspect of human nature. <clears throat> so anything you can ascribe to human nature is in some way related to the image of God. So this would include all these different aspects. A mental component, intellect, cognition, the mind, thinking, reasoning, memory, emotional component, our feelings, passions, heart, motivations, affections. Our will or volition, so our decision-making, our purposing, choosing. It would include a moral component, so our sense of right and wrong, conscience, ethical awareness, It includes our bodies, a physical component, human activity, human agency. And then it would also include a spiritual component, uh, our capacity to relate to God, human uh, desire for ultimate questions, meaning, things like that. So basically, you can see the four pillars in these different aspects. Physical, mental, social, spiritual. So the holistic, organic view sees the whole person, not these disconnected parts, but it sees this as a whole uh, interconnected system. All of those aspects are included in what it means to be in the image. A third aspect of the holistic view is the corporate sense of the image of God. So the image of God is both an individual thing and a corporate thing. Individual human beings bear God's image, and humanity as a whole was designed to image God. And God's vision for humanity is to create a new humanity. 
in Christ. And then the fourth and final aspect of the holistic view is what's called the broad and the narrow aspect of the image. So we make a broad and a narrow distinction of what we mean by the image. And this distinction emerges after the fall. So we're trying to account for the fact that um, human beings have fallen into sin, but we haven't lost the image, but it has been damaged. So the broad sense of the image refers to the ontological aspect of image bearing. So as I said, insofar as you're a human being, you never cease bearing God's image. That's the broad sense of the image. You never lose or stop being the image. The narrow sense of God's image is original righteousness that was fallen or damaged after the fall. And so we need to be renewed in the image through our union with Christ. Another aspect of the image is that Jesus is the perfect image of God. A few passages to demonstrate this. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the, invi- the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 4.4-6 talks about how the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In Philippians 2.6, that famous Christ hymn says Jesus was in the form of God. So he shares the same essence of the Father. He is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So he is eternally the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is the ultimate perfect image of God. And the goal of sanctification is the restoration of the image of God in us. Jesus is the perfect image. As believers, we are being conformed into his image. We are becoming like Christ. 
God's purpose for Christians is that we would be fully conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 29 through 30, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is God's purpose for us. This is our future hope and our blessing. We will be conformed to God's image. This is our telos or purpose, our goal in life. Our goal is to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so we can speak of the ontological sense of the image. We are simply God's image in a broad sense. But we can also speak of a teleological sense of the image or telos, which is that our purpose is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that process is a progressive, dynamic process. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the Holy Spirit is the divine agent who conforms us to the image. The Spirit unites us to Christ. The Spirit sanctifies us. The Spirit restores and transforms our mortal bodies into the image of Christ. So the full restoration of the image of God in us will not take place in this lifetime. The full restoration of the image is our future hope and our reality when we see God face to face. First John 3, 2 says when we, we know that when he appears, Jesus, at his return, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And if you remember from last week, we would always maintain that creator-creature distinction. So we will be conformed to the image of the Son, but we will never share in God's essence. We're never going to become God. We're going to be like Christ. So that's the doctrine of the image of God. Next, we can discuss some about human nature. Nature is the whatness of something, what something is. 
person is the who. So we can speak of the Trinity, you know, the persons, the who, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they share one nature, the whatness. What are they? They are God. So human nature is complex, and human nature has a material aspect and an immaterial aspect. The material aspect is our bodies. The immaterial aspect is our soul or spirit. And the physical and the immaterial aspect are united into one inseparable union. We are body-soul unities. As Terry said this morning, we're physical, spiritual hybrids. Body-soul unities. Historically, there's been two main positions about the relationship between the material and immaterial aspect of human nature. And that's trichotomy and dichotomy. Trichotomy means to cut into three parts. Dichotomy means to cut into two parts. So trichotomy says that human nature consists of body, soul, and spirit. They view those things as three distinct things. So they appeal to various passages. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews 4.13 says the word of God is living and active. It divides the soul, the spirit, and the body, the joints and marrow. Dichotomy says that human nature is comprised of two aspects. And this view would basically see soul or spirit as interchangeable terms, not terms that relate to distinct things. So this view looks at different biblical passages and says sometimes... Um, it seems they're using soul or spirit interchangeably. So Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then 1 Corinthians 5, Paul speaks of being absent in body but present in spirit. And then he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So both Jesus and Paul are talking about the afterlife, eternal punishment. Jesus uses the word soul. Paul uses the word spirit. So dichotomists would say, 
Soul and spirit are essentially synonyms. Historically, dichotomy seems to be the favored position, uh, but both would be acceptable views. Both are considered versions of dualism, and there are different forms of dualism that we'll discuss, but both trichotomists and dichotomists are reacting against a philosophical view known as monism, and these are the materialists we talked about last week. The reality is one kind of thing. All of reality is just material. Human beings are nothing but atoms. This is the nothing buttery. Human love is nothing but synapses, things in the brain. The mind is nothing but the brain. Uh, the problem, the biblical problem with monism is that if we are just our bodies, monism doesn't account for the intermediate state. And the intermediate state is an abnormal state of human existence, but it occurs at death when the immaterial aspect of our being is separated from our physical body. And at our death, the immaterial aspect of our being immediately enters into the presence of Christ. And then we await the resurrection of our bodies when we receive a glorified body. So if we are merely our bodies, then that means we cease to exist at our death. But the historic teaching on the intermediate state doesn't allow this. And so the church has rejected a form of monism. So there are different types of dualism. Um, there's a couple unacceptable forms, and then there's an acceptable form. So here's the unacceptable forms of dualism. The unacceptable forms of dualism would be like a moral dualism. Think of yin and yang or um, Star Wars, the Force, uh, Sith and Jedi. We must bring balance to the Force. Good and evil are two opposing equal forces. That's not how the Bible depicts evil. Satan is not God's equal, as if the outcome is uncertain. So that's moral dualism. Another unacceptable form is called substance dualism. And this comes from Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Substance dualism says that the mind and the body are two completely different substances. And Descartes essentially said, when he says, I think, therefore I am, he's saying your true self is the mind, 
Your true self is the immaterial aspect of your being, and you're a thinking thing, but the thinking thing doesn't occur in the body. It occurs in an immaterial mind. And so the problem with what's called Cartesian dualism or substance dualism is that it has a diminished understanding of our bodies. Essentially, it's saying the true self is the soul. So what are the acceptable forms of dualism? The view that I take is called holistic dualism. And this view would affirm that we are one substance comprised of two aspects. We are body-soul unities. Now, how the body and soul are united is a mystery, but we believe they're inseparably united. The only exception would be the intermediate state, but that is an abnormal state of human existence. God somehow sustains the immaterial aspect of ourselves until we are reunited with a glorified body. So as we discuss a doctrine of humanity, we need to give specific attention to the theological significance of our bodies. And at River, I think we do a good job of focusing on the pillars of resilience, physical, mental, social, and spiritual. So we've done a good job of focusing on the significance of our bodies as it relates to our walk with Christ. However, it's still strange for us to think about our bodies. It seems like it's such an obvious thing. Of course, I'm embodied, but we often don't think about our bodies or our physicality, especially in spiritual things. And Greg Allison, if you're interested, has written another book called Embodied. There's another book by the same title, Embodied, by a man named Preston Sprinkle, but his looks like this. Um, and it's excellent. So what is embodiment? Embodiment is the proper state of human existence. It's the condition of having or being in a body. Now our culture is confused on the body. Uh, we live in a society that simultaneously overemphasizes and underemphasizes the body. We overemphasize the body in that we're a body obsessed society. The body is everything. We have unrealistic expectations of what our bodies should look like. The wellness industry is a multi billion dollar industry. And we're inundated with images of bodies on Instagram, YouTube, magazines, movies, TV, with idealized bodies. 
We have body image issues. 95% of men and women suffer from body image issues. I was reading about eating disorders among males rising in recent years. Men have a higher drive toward muscularity, which leads to body dysmorphia, being uncomfortable with how your body looks. We also underemphasize the body. Society dismisses the body. Gnosticism is an ancient heresy that said the body was inherently evil. It prioritized the spiritual and said the spiritual is good, the body is bad. And we can see Gnosticism's influence even in today's culture. So think of the transgender issue. The true self is rooted in something immaterial, in feelings. The body is not constitutive of who you are. And then Christians tend to underemphasize the importance of the body. We would say that uh, the body is good, but it's not as good as spiritual stuff. So we often fall into the trap of focusing on spiritual things to the neglect of physical. Different aspects of embodiment is the created body. God created our bodies when he created them. They were a part of what he called very good. So everything else leading up to the creation of men and women is good. It was good. It was good. Then he created mankind in his image, male and female, and it was very good. So our bodies are included in that. So we can affirm the phrase, I am my body. I'm not merely my body, but I also don't merely have a body. I am my body. I am who I am because of the body I have. So questions for us to consider would be, are you thankful for God's creation of you as embodied? How can you embrace the goodness of your physical body? What negative attitudes toward your body do you need to distance yourself from? Are you troubled by your body? How can God help you overcome wrong thinking patterns about your body? Those are important questions. Y'all want to do a doctrine of sin in 10 minutes? (laughs) Didn't realize how much time I had. I'll hit the highlights. Here's our doctrine of sin. 
This is a definition from Greg Allison. He says, any lack of conformity to the moral law of God. Such nonconformity applies to one's being, the sin nature, or tendency to sin. It applies to our actions, evil deeds, like idolatry and murder. It would include attitudes or words and motivations. So sin means to miss the mark. Hamartia is the Greek word, to miss the mark. Sin is unfaithfulness, disobedience, pride, rebellion, deception, indifference, disoriented loves, hopelessness. We can also speak of sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of commission would be sins that you willfully commit. Sins of omission would be sins of non-action when you should have acted. James 4.17 speaks of knowing the good you ought to do and you don't do it. The gravity of sins would be that all sin brings guilt before God, but not all sins are equal in terms of their gravity or their consequences. Augustine speaks of the different states of humanity. In the created state, he says we are able not to sin. So this was Adam and Eve in the garden. They were created able not to sin. Then they sinned. And now, in our fallen state, we are not able not to sin. But in, in the glorified state, our future hope, we will be not able to sin. So that's what we long for. The origin of sin is one of the biggest mysteries in all of theology. As God is not the author of sin, how do we account for sin's entrance into the world? You can read Allison's chapter on the creation of Satan, demons, and angels. God in his infinite wisdom permits sin. Sin does not occur outside of God's providence or his care for creation. God will bring good out of evil. Nothing will frustrate God from accomplishing his purposes. Sin enters the world through moral choices of his human creatures. Sin is a deprivation of the good. Sin is not intrinsic to the world. So the created world was considered good. And so because sin does not belong to the essence of the world, it's something that can be removed from the world through divine grace and power.
Now we can speak of original sin. Original sin would be the state of all people at their birth, and this would include original guilt and original corruption, our sin nature or tendency toward evil. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the reason we can speak of original sin is because Adam acted as our representative. He was the representative man. And Adam passed down his sinful nature to all humanity. Now, theologians speak of total depravity. But my preferred term is pervasive depravity. Uh, Total depravity can be misunderstood or caricatured. Total depravity does not... um, mean that every person is as evil as possible. What it means is that every aspect of human nature is tainted or corrupted by sin. So total depravity doesn't mean that uh, people lack all moral sense or that sinful people can't do any good whatsoever. What total depravity means or pervasive depravity means is that we are not capable on our own of any saving good. The whole person has been affected by sin. Our intellect, our mind, emotion, feelings, will, our bodies, disease, sickness, death, every aspect of human nature has been affected by sin. In your notes, there's a section on um, temptation versus actual sin. And then we can speak of the consequences of sin And ultimately, uh, we have to conclude with the gospel hope. Um, The gospel is our only hope of saving us from sin. The gospel is the only thing powerful enough to save us from our sin. We can't escape the effects of sin through good works, legalism, moralism, education, social justice, theologies of liberation. The only thing that will save us is the gospel of Jesus. Romans 1.16, Paul says, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And so we'll discuss next week, um, we'll talk about the atonement and what Jesus' death accomplished for us. I knew I tried to pack too much into today's lecture, but um, that has been a brief discussion of the Trinity and a 
a brief survey into aspects of doctrine of humanity. Um, but as you can tell, the things I'm most passionate about are the image of God and human nature. Um, so that's one of your prompts, I think, is the question on the image. So um, you're free to leave, but I will stick around for questions if anybody has some. <clears throat>